you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I am your host, Janine Garner. And it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to yet another episode where we get under the hood of some amazing people to truly understand how they unleash their brilliance, their journey to where they're at. And we dig deep into some of their learnings along the way. My latest guest is no exception. I am so thrilled to bring you a conversation with Marie McPherson. One of the questions she asked during this conversation was, What would compassion and love allow you to do if they were sat beside you right now? What would compassion and love allow you to do if they were sat beside you right now? You know, what would they allow you to do in terms of the decisions you make, the choices you make, those big steps you want to make, those, um, those things that you might have to change to take one step closer to becoming who it is that you want to become. Once again, what would compassion and love allow you to do if they were sat beside you right now? This is one of the key questions that Marie asks on this podcast. Marie has a strong belief that impact follows insight and her gifts bring organizations to life through what she sees, what she hears and what she feels. She helps develop organizations into legacies by assisting people in thinking and making sense of what they discover. Marie believes that we're all capable of way more, and she shares so much personal reflection and insight in this conversation about how she made some pretty major decisions during her career. Her leadership experience spans over 35 years, including a chief executive in a peak body uh, and a regional development organization. And initially, she was trained in social welfare. She started her career in case management with children's services and assisted people with intellectual disabilities. But now her clients include ambitious individuals and leading organizations. She has worked with individual leaders and leadership teams within organizations to embrace lifelong learning and create a legacy. As she shared with me, one of the critical things that she learned during her entire career working with children uh, through her children's services experience, then helping assist people with intellectual disabilities her role as a CEO, and now her role helping other people step into their worthiness. What she's absolutely learned along the way, irrespective, is that we are all human beings capable of achieving so much more. Marie McPherson is the author of two books, Cutting Through the Grass Ceiling, Women Creating Possibility in Regional Australia, and her latest book, Worthy, Stop Mauling Your Mojo, Straighten Yourself Talk and Create an Intentional Life, was released uh, literally a couple of weeks ago. This book is available everywhere. Just check the show notes if you want to grab yourself a copy. She is also one of uh, 4.1% of coaches in Australia and New Zealand, serving as a member of the International Coach Federation. So grab whatever your drink of choice is, uh, make sure those earphones are in, settle yourself back for an incredible and insightful conversation with the amazing Marie McPherson. 
Well, I'm super excited to welcome today's guest. Today's guest, Marie McPherson, I have known for many years. And it's been so awesome to watch Marie's journey transitioning from CEO positions to now being a thought leader uh, in the work that she does in the space of leadership. She's the author of two incredible books, her latest book, Worthy, which no doubt we'll end up chatting about later, um, and is a significant contributor uh, in her local community with, with the work that she does. Um, I'm so, so excited to be chatting to Marie today um, to really explore her journey and the various decisions that she's made throughout her career to ultimately unleash the brilliant person that she is now. So welcome, Marie. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Janine. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so excited to be talking to you this morning. And can you share with our audience, where are you dialing in from today? Where do you live? So I live in the southeast part of Australia in a state, uh, for your international guests, uh, in the state of Victoria, in the very pointy end. So I'm about two hours from Melbourne. And if I think about where I live in traditional owner terms, um, Indigenous Australians terms, I live on Gunai Kurnai country. It's absolutely beautiful. It's green, mountainous, lots of dairy cows and some large uh, regional cities. And summer must be, is it starting to turn spring-like, summer-like down there? Very spring-like. So we're having um, we're having a, a lot of rain, which is unusual for this time of year. Um, so of course everything is pea green and looking very British, oh, <laughs> which, is, which is unusual for us. Uh, but yes, we can definitely feel summer is on the way. Were you were you born there, Marie, or have you moved there? I was born and bred here, Janine. So <laughs> this is my local community. And while I've um, worked away and lived in different places I've always had a home here yeah what is it that's kept you there do you think uh partly family uh Mm -hmm. my parents um have always been here uh one sibling although other siblings have moved away uh close friends um but I think it must be something more I I suspect it is it's it's the kind of place that gets under your skin it's a very beautiful place scenically and, um, it you know, I love the green. I love that sense of coming home and wherever I have been in the world, there's a, a, a part of the, the M1 freeway driving out of Melbourne where you start to see the hills and that's about an hour from home and it always uplifts my spirits. As soon as I see those green hills, I think, ah, oh, I'm on the way. So you're a country girl through and through, Marie. I think I must be. It must be genetic. <laughs> <laughs> How do you reckon that that community that you've grown up in has shaped who you are? Oh, I suspect it has shaped me in many ways, Janine. I think from very early age, uh, I was raised by parents who were very active in the community. So my father was a Scouts District Commissioner. My mum was a, a volunteer arcailer in the local cub pack where my brothers went to cubs. Uh, both of my brothers were musicians in the city band. Uh, my sister and I both played sport. So we were really active members of our 
little town as it was then. And that made a huge impact, I, I think, on my life as, you know, wanting to be an active citizen and support things that were happening where I lived. Mm. And you obviously went into a well what was your first job can you remember what your first job was (laughs) ever yeah uh apart from a stint in a childcare center as as, um straight after finishing my uh year 12 or you know my senior high school here I, I spent a week doing work experience in a childcare center and um they made me change all the baby's nappies so that had a lasting impact on my nasal cavity I've got to say (laughs) but my first proper job my first real job after finishing university uh, I worked in um, children's and family services alongside the child protection system so what a baptism by fire um, in into the world of work wow Mm. what do you so when you talk about baptism of fire tell me a little bit more about that So one of the first things that I ever had to do was place children in foster care, you know, remove them from their their families. Um, We we had um, an urgent response uh, foster care program where uh, kids who'd been, say, neglected or abused in some way were being taken out of home. And I was 21 and transporting kids in the middle of the night uh, to to different families. So... um, Pretty, pretty remarkable stuff to be doing at that age. And I look back on that time now and think, how did I do that? Mm. You know, I, I was trained, but I knew nothing about the world. How on earth did I do that? It's quite remarkable. Mm. Did you stay in that uh, area of work? What Share with our audience a little bit of your journey in work. Mm. Mm. So I spent two years in that organisation doing that kind of work Um, and after two years I realised that I was, um, well, I'm not sure if I realised, I certainly felt burned out and perhaps less equipped than I could be uh, to remain doing that kind of work. So um, I made a diversion into working with people with intellectual disabilities And it was an amazingly interesting time in that sector because people were being de-institutionalised. They were being brought back to their communities to live in um, residential units, uh, in smaller congregate care, and being treated with respect in a way that they hadn't been at any other time in our history. Uh, So my job at that point was to help establish independent living programs for people who had um, high enough function to be able to live by themselves or perhaps with one other adult. And that was the most amazing time. I had uh, 18 months in, in that role working alongside people to ensure that they had good places to live and independent support workers I got to go to lots of dinner parties with <laughs> with my clients who uh, were learning to cook and wow. I ate some amazing concoctions, I can assure you. But it was such an enriching experience to see people, you know, being valued in that way. Mm. What do you think that taught you that, you know, moving from, you know, the child protection area then into that space, what skills what awareness what what insight did it give you that period of your life 
I I believe that uh, the biggest learning for me was that we are all important human beings and we're all capable of more. You know, this this was a, a group of people in society who had traditionally been seen as unable to do many things, you know, to not be highly skilled, perhaps to be not capable of learning more. And what this proved to me was that everyone had the capacity to learn more, do more, be more, and they were incredibly brave. You know, these were women and men who had been in institutions, say, until their late 40s, early 50s, and were living independently for the first time. Um, such um, such joy, such excitement, such fear, <laughs> trepidation, um, and to see wonderful support systems put around them, it, it was yeah, it was an incredible time. And so, what happened next? What happened next? Where did I go from there? Um, from that role, I went into an occupational health and safety organisation that was um, state-run, so a public public sector organisation where I was responsible for helping injured workers get back to work. So quite a shift mm. but possibly aligned with the disability sector. So that was, that was the real attraction. So I was able to put my social welfare skills to good work in that new job and worked as part of a multidisciplinary team with occupational therapists, physios, um, speech therapists, a whole range of different professions, nurses, um, ergonomists. It was incredible, such rich learning. You know, my, my brain was on fire in that job. It absolutely was. So people and working with people obviously is at the core of everything you do. Um his, what do you think about the work that you do? Is what what is it that drives you in that space? I, I really believe it's that that fundamental um, faith in human nature and everyone's ability to achieve more. Um, so if I think about the, that early context and those early jobs and the work that I do today, there's quite a thread of connection. Mm. And it's probably only in recent times that I've come to understand that. But, you know, even if you think about getting people back to work who've been injured or have had um, stress and anxiety um, situations that have kept them from working, it's that really strong belief that, you know, you can do this. Um, we're going to we're going to have your back. We're going to put these supports around you and help you, you know, elevate yourself back there. Everyone's keen to see you come back. Your colleagues want you here. You know, they've got cakes ready in the fridge for your return. We're going to be able to do this together. And then, if I look at the work that I do with people today, there's some really similar philosophies behind it. You know, I've got your back. I'll stand mm. with you. You can do this. Mm. And. You know, now, so share with our audience what, what it is that you do do today. Um, if you can just share with them, that would be great. Mm. So essentially I'm a people promoter. You know, mm. what, what absolutely lights me up is seeing people step into their own authority and lead themselves from within. And that particularly um, plays out in the work that I do with women. So you know, it's really important for me to see women flourish and thrive and really grow themselves. So, you know, I'm absolutely passionate about 
people accessing self-development and professional development and investing as much as they can afford in creating a better outcome for themselves. Is there any particular watershed moment for you, Marie, um, in your life to hear that um, has almost affected what it is that you're doing today? Oh, I think there's probably several. <laughs> I would I find it hard to narrow it down to one. Um, but I, I think probably the biggest one was my decision to pack up and move away from my husband and live in another place. So I, I moved um, to Melbourne uh, for five years and was the chief executive of a statewide local governance body. And I think that decision to uh, you know, to to go and live alone and work across an entire state um, in a very senior role, which brought me into contact with, um, you know, senior government officials, uh, politicians, um, you know, some of the most senior people in our land. Um, that was that was probably a, a major watershed for me. It was that point of saying, well, you either you either pass up this opportunity and kick yourself forever that you didn't do it or you make the break and you do it. And fortunately I had incredible support at home and there was no question that I was going to make this happen and off I went and it was the most um, incredibly difficult and rewarding time of my career. Can you remember, I mean, it's such an interesting decision to make, brave decision and power decision, you know, you insert any objective, adjective you want into that. Um, can you remember the decision-making process that you went through when this opportunity got presented to you and then you had to essentially change everything up around you to pursue that opportunity? What did you go through? Mm, it's a great question. And reflecting on that time, um, I can I remember it so clearly. I was sitting in my car um, I'd, I'd come back from um, the second interview for the job. So I'd been, I'd been down to the city um, and I, I was sitting in my car and I got a call from the recruitment agency and they said, um, they basically said, how badly do you want this job? <laughs> and, and I said, uh, that's a fascinating question. Why are you asking me? And they said, well, it is, it's your job if you want it. How badly do you want this? Um, you know, you're the preferred candidate and, you know, we need to know how hard to go into bat for you because, um, you know, this, this board, they want you. They, they actually want to make you the offer. So that's what this phone call is about. But really we need to know um, how invested you are and whether you're really up for this because it's not going to be easy and, you are, you know, packing up your life and moving somewhere else. So it was a really insightful phone call from them. They they were really trying to gauge, I guess, uh, my sense of commitment because they knew that I would have to be deeply committed. Mm-hmm. And so it was that point of, uh, you know, am I ready to make this decision right in this moment? Do I need to take 24 hours? Um, you know, up until then it hadn't necessarily been so crystal clear because I was still in the interview process. The job wasn't mine. But in that moment, it was, oh, we're really here right now. <laughs> we're at that point. Um, so what I did was I rang my coach 
<laughs> I phoned my my uh, executive coach and said, uh, "Help me, help me work this through. I've got a big decision to make. Uh, help me step it through. I need to process this with myself, with someone else listening." Oh. Have you gone? I'm back. You just paused a second. So can you go back to, let's keep going because this is good. Can you go back to, so just pause when I say one, two, three, and then go back to, so what I did is I phoned my executive coach. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's go. We'll just pause and I'll go one, two, three. So what I did, Janine, I phoned my executive coach. I really needed uh, someone to help me process my th- my thoughts, you know this is this is real now. Uh, so I, I'm really going to need to have a conversation with myself, with someone else listening. If that makes sense, it so makes sense. So what did that coach? Because there's two conversations I'm really curious about. One, the conversation with the coach, and how you finally made that decision. Um, that essentially was a life-changing one in terms of setting you off on that trajectory of doing that CEO's job and to where you're at now. And secondly, I'm curious how the conversation went with your husband because you were, were you married at the time? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, it makes it sound like he was not the first person that I called, and so that's that's um, that's not quite true. I did I did ring him and say, uh, and he didn't answer his phone. He was he was busy at work, so I left a message to say, uh, I've had the job offer. And we need to have a serious conversation when we both get home. And then I phoned my coach. Um, so the coaches, the, my coach was fabulous. She she really asked me some challenging questions, which were really important. And they were, you know, what's who are the support network you will need around you in order for this to happen? So you are making a really big step here you know you can do it, you know. So we had that conversation around my capacity and skills and, you know, what I would take into the job. And so that was almost a given. Yes, this this will be good. Um, it, and she was really, I guess, challenging me to think about how I would establish myself, um, wh- what sort of networks would I need and how would I put those in place um, so that, that was a really helpful conversation in almost mind mapping, uh, mm. the things that I would take with me. And then of course, the conversation at home was <laughs> how quickly can I find a place to live? Um, how often will we see each other through the week? You know, will we, will we actually put some boundaries around how this is going to work? And after the first six months, what kind of game plan will we have to test whether this is working for both of us. Um, so it was a it was a fabulous conversation, really insightful uh, at many levels. And yeah, I'm I'm so glad that I jumped. So just thinking back to that, because I'm imagining there's there's a few people that are listening in now that may have their own version of making big decisions. And you said there that you knew you could do it, like you knew that this is something that was possible, but at the same time, it's all of the stuff in the background that makes it such a bigger decision. And Mm. I'm imagining, you know, 
other people's views, comments, the conversations going on in your head, the A plan, B plan, C plan, all of it going on, which can become noise uh, for so many that it actually stops them making that big step. What have what have you learned through that 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 um, you would advise or give insight to to people listening if they're also at that process of knowing they can do something, knowing that they want to change something, but it's almost like, gosh, can I do this? What would you advise? Uh, Looking back, um, very clearly my advice would be think about the people who matter in this decision and only think about them. Uh, you know, it was it would have been very easy for me to be swayed by the opinions of people who thought they were giving me good advice. You know, I even had people coming out of the woodwork that I hadn't spoken to for years, you know, that I didn't consider friends but were acquaintances saying, so does this mean your marriage is over? You know, incredibly incredibly rude questions Mm -hmm. neighbors who would say to my husband so is she coming home this is weird you know and actually it's not that unusual people do this kind of thing all the time Uh, but but in a small community maybe it was unusual maybe uh, it was seen as a signal of uh, some kind of disharmony Uh, so my advice to people would be think only about the people who matter in this decision and that's of course yourself and uh, the people that you love and potentially you know your new employer um, really everyone else's opinions are irrelevant because they're not living your life mm. yeah mm. that's really cool really cool um what you, what would you say is your your greatest accomplishment so far personally and professionally Marie oh gosh that's a toughie. Mm. Mm, my greatest accomplishment personally, I reckon having written two books is pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. I feel I feel really good about that. And if anyone had said to me a decade ago that by 2021 I would have written and published two books, I think I might have fallen off the couch laughing. You know, I probably would have said, why would I do that? I don't, I don't need to write a book. And I have nothing to say. Uh, So perhaps the personal accomplishment would be that I've found something to say that other people have found very worthwhile. (laughs) So it feels like I've um, been able to impact a lot of lives by doing that. Um, And I suspect that that's the same uh, professionally. I I think having written two books, having established my own business, feeling like I've found the niche in life, feeling like, um, uh, you know, I'm living a good life. I feel like that's my biggest accomplishment. I'm living a good life. What's your definition of living a good life? <laughs> I knew that was coming next. <laughs> uh, for me, it's about living a life that's aligned with my values. Mm. So you know, the biggest value in, in my world, the, the thing that's most important to me is wisdom. Uh, I appreciate the wisdom of others. I've learned to appreciate the wisdom in myself and I want to be able to deliver work and community support that draws on the knowledge that I have and the knowledge that other people bring. So for me, it's all about empowering others and myself through learning and listening and curiosity, testing the things that I believe in, 
you know, constantly assessing, well, why, why do I think that way? Um, what's led me to that conclusion? And bringing compassion to everything that I question. So rather than judgment, if I find myself in judgment, that's a key moment for me to check myself and say, yeah, okay, so why am I judging this person or this situation? What else could be going on? And if compassion were sitting with me, how would I be thinking about this? Does that does that resonate for you? Do you find that that's helpful for you as well? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really just all of that is there's so much in that in terms of what you've you've just said that um, shows the sort of leader that you are, the way that you support your clients and the person that you are. It absolutely does resonate. I'm curious, where where do you think all of those behavior traits, decision-making traits, the per- where values have come from? Yeah, that's it's such a big question, isn't it? Because it's mm. that whole nature or nurture thing, which I'm I'm never quite sure how much <laughs> exists on on each um, each plane. Um, but if I think about uh, family history, you know, I've got two remarkable grandmothers that I'm descended from, uh, who were in, they were incredible women who had to make very tough decisions because of the lives that they were that the, the lives they led but also the the cards that they were dealt in life so you know my dutch grandmother my oma who had to raise um four children uh, after the death of her husband at a very young age during the second world war in in western europe um you know incredibly tough time for her Uh, so her resilience and clearly some of the decisions she would have to have made um, were quite profound and my English grandmother who uh, came here as a child of the age of six sailed into the port of Melbourne with her family and settled with a new life she came from a a house in Kent uh, where they had servants and she arrived to a little, little bush hut made of bark in the middle of the countryside um, with with her family and then lost her mother uh, very, very young. So her mother died giving birth to the youngest child and my mother ended up raising her siblings. So incredible resilience from both of those two women. And I think there's clearly been an influence on our whole family through that through that sort of matriarchal line around you know having to make tough decisions having to protect other people mm. and having to draw on their wisdom and their inner reserves and i suspect some of my um way of doing things comes from the two of them mm, such um an incredible group of amazing women around you by the sound of it with your Omar, your English grandmother, and even you mentioned there, did I hear right, that your mother ended up having to raise her siblings? My grandmother, my grandmother. grandmother. Yeah. 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 Incredible strength, as you said, of a totally different generation and way of life here in Australia. Mm. Um, What's what's your fondest memory of of one of those grandmothers? 
<laughs> so my, my Dutch grandmother, my Omar, I never actually met her. Uh, mm. She came to Australia twice, uh, but, but on both occasions uh, I, I hadn't been born. So she met my siblings, but she never got to meet me. Mm. But my fondest memory of her was talking on the telephone. So these were the days when you had to book a call seven yes. days ahead. <laughs> Remember I remember that because my family moved to, <laughs> my mum's sister moved to Australia and we were still in England. And I can still remember um, us having to plan a week or two weeks ahead for a phone call to Australia. And you'd wait with bated breath as well to see if you actually got through. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little bit like getting internet connections right today, isn't it? (laughs) So my fondest memory was the the Sunday afternoon conversations with Omar. And she she didn't have um, fabulous English, but she had enough. And we were able to have, uh, when I was a little girl, we were able to have some lovely conversations on the telephone and, you know, writing letters. We used to write to one another. We were like pen pals, um, sending little gifts and, you know, drawings from kindergarten, that kind of thing. And, you know, my my um, English Australian grandmother, my, my mum's mother, my fondest memories of her are probably spending time on the farm during my school holidays. Um, My siblings had a lot more time doing that because um, I was the youngest and the farm was sold when I was um, still in primary school. Uh, But but really hanging out with her, hanging out with Nana and having conversations. And she lived to the ripe age of 102 and, you know, we were still hanging out and having conversations until very late in her life. Um, She was an amazing amazing woman just incredible I love it so it's the power of conversations and storytelling isn't it that stays yeah. with you yes so there's an interesting now you know your latest book there's lots of stories in there worthy I'm curious you mentioned earlier about if someone had said you'd written two books by the year 2021 you'd have almost fallen over um, what was the moment that you because you've gone from CEO and now you're an author and a uh, leadership coach. Um, what was the moment for you where you decided to leave, I suppose, a traditional job to go off and do your own your own thing, to build your own business? Mm. Yeah, it, it was it was a transitional time, Janine. Um, I I had came back after that CEO role, uh, came back home. Uh, my mother-in-law was um, very, very ill. She had uh, dementia and was um, in the final stages of her life. And so I came home to support my husband uh, with her care. It, we weren't caring for her at home. Uh, she was she was in an aged care facility, um, but our job was to, to look after her. And I took three months out of the workforce at that point and really sat and thought seriously about what do I want to do next? You know, I've had two CEO gigs. What comes next after that? You know, how do you how do you step into something else? Um, and in that three months, a close friend of mine who was a, uh, a senior executive in a government department, she said, we've, we've got a vacancy and I'd love you to just step in for three months and support us for with this vacancy. It's a full-time job, but we don't need you every day. If you, if you want to do three or four days, that would be wonderful. And I held off and I held off and, and she kept nagging me until I said yes. So that three months became six, which became 12, 
which became 15 months. And over that time, I realised that I really couldn't work for anybody else anymore, that I just was not fit for purpose, (laughs) particularly in the public service. (laughs) And it was time for me to think about going out on my own. And a very wise woman uh, I had lunch with uh, in one of on, on one Friday said to me, "If you don't jump now, when will you?" What a powerful question she asked mm. me. If you don't, if you don't set up on your own now and go into business, when will you? Uh, because that's what I was toying around. You know, if, if I'm if I'm not doing paid employment, then that means self employment. Uh, and I had just finished, I'd been back to university at the age of 50 and finished my postgraduate studies in um, organisational coaching. And, you know, it was that question, well, if I don't do this now, when do I? Mm. If I'm not grown up enough at 50 (laughs) to do this, when do I? Uh, So that was was the moment um, when, when Jane asked me that question, it was time to really put my stake in the ground. So once again, another big step that you took that sent you on that next phase Mm. of your career, Mm. Um, one, leaving a public service job that has a regular, the regularity of income and hours and knowing what it is that you've got. security. And then secondly, they're going to uni at 50. Um, (laughs) What did you learn about yourself (laughs) looking back now? Because again, much like moving to the city job, I'm imagining um, if you're if you're human, there's an element of trepidation. I'm making the right decision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Looking back, what did you learn about yourself at that moment? <laughs> that I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, so I, you know, I do look back on that time with great fondness and a bit of hilarity. Um, you know that th- that was the third qualification that I undertook, and I remember I remember my husband said to me, "You know, is this is this going to be the last one, or will there be more?" And he didn't mind either way, uh, but you know, let me let me tell you a funny aside, Janine. Um, when we went on our honeymoon, I I was still studying at that point, so. I was doing my second qualification, which was my, you know, that was my graduate, postgraduate studies in business and industrial relations. And I had a residential school, which finished on the Friday afternoon and we were getting married on the Saturday. <laughs> so I came back from residential school, um, you know, basically uh, got some sleep and got up the next day and went off to be a bride. And we went on our honeymoon where I had two assignments due. And it was over dinner one night that he said to me, do you reckon you could defer just so that you can enjoy the honeymoon? <laughs> That's pretty funny, isn't it? And did you so, say yes or no? I did. I rang, oh. I rang the university and I deferred. I thought, you know, I actually probably should listen to this request. It's pretty fair. Uh, so I did defer that semester and caught up on my studies later. Um, so it was a reasonable question for him to ask me at 50, you know, will this be the last qualification or will there be more? Uh, that's the context. So, yeah, you know, that all those human feelings of am I too old to do this? Is it the wrong time of life? Um, what if I fail? You know, what if I'm not successful at this? What if I um, don't still have the ability to learn? Um, but, I, you know, after the first week, I realised how much I loved what I was doing. It really 
it really did get under my skin. I thought, yeah, this I have found where I need to be. And interestingly, it felt like I had gone full circle from, you know, social welfare studies and then business and then all those different career shifts. And here I was studying about people again and learning about the importance of listening to other people and listening to intuition and self um, and quietening the inner voice, using it to best effect and asking powerful questions. Uh, so it really felt like I was home. It was such a such a great revelation going back to that study. So is there anything that you would do differently? You know, no, I don't think so. I mean, that's a it's a sliding doors moment, isn't it? You, there are so many decisions we make in life where we could go one way or another, and we never will really know how life would be had we made a different decision. But I can honestly say, hand on heart, that I would not do anything differently. Um, I would do it all over again, even the painful bits, uh, because they make us, you know, don't don't you think they make us who we are? Oh, absolutely. And at the time you sometimes question the decisions you make, Mm. Um, but actually when you look backwards and look back, you can see that there is a golden thread. You can see that each step has been a step closer to where it is or has created the opportunity I mean who knows whether it's preordained or whether it's through the choices (laughs) we become who we are but yeah it's interesting at the time like can you remember can you remember I call them those vomit in mouth moments where you made a decision and you go oh my gosh what am I doing can you remember one of those moments Oh, yeah, look, up. there are many in my life. There are many and some really embarrassing ones too. Oh, um, Tatal, come on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think things like, you know, tripping over on a, you know, walking up to get on a stage to make a speech. Um, I remember standing in, um, uh, I, I had to chair, I, one of the roles that I had in the community, I was, chairing um, a, a major community event, the first of its type ever held in, in our region. There were probably 15 senior politicians, members of the state cabinet were in the room and about 400 people. And, you know, it was that moment where I walked up onto the stage to open and, you know, start the address and I looked out into this sea of expectant people uh, who were really wanting some wisdom, really wanting some sense of safety about the transition the community was about to go through and thinking, what the bloody hell am I doing here? <laughs> what the heck? I, what have I signed up for? How did I end up here? And, you know, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I had to really kind of um, swallow that vomit, <laughs> had, to, had to take that moment to calm my mind and say, you're here for a purpose. You're here because people need you and they want you in this role. You've been appointed by government to take charge of this and it's going to be okay. Just put all your skills into practice. You don't have to be the font of all knowledge. You don't have to have all the answers. That's what these people here in the room are here for. You're going to ask them. And once I, you know, in those milliseconds that I told myself that story, it all turned out okay and I was ready to go. 
So you, I mean, there's just so many stories, avenues, your own wisdom and insights through your your own life journey that you've now put into your latest book, Worthy. Mm. Um, Why did you feel you had to write that book? Yeah, I, I mean, you you know the answer to this, Janine, because you've been on the journey with me and you wrote the foreword for the book. Uh, but there was there was a, a dinner event that I was at in Melbourne some time ago, um, and I was sitting next to a woman uh, that I'd never met before. We got into a conversation. You know those conversations you have at events where the guest speaker does their thing and, you know, entrees served and so you get chatting to the people next to you um, and then during main course the conversation continues. And the woman who was seated next to me uh, was really intrigued by the work that I did and started pouring out her soul to me in a quite unexpected way for perhaps for me and for her and told me her story. She she talked to me about some of the things that she had decided on in her youth, like deciding not to go to university because her parents couldn't quite afford it at the time, uh, some of the choices she'd made in life and how wistful she was and how kind of full of regret she was about things that she hadn't done. She got quite emotional and uh, partway through the event she decided she would go home early and she left. And I was really struck by that conversation. I've had many of those conversations with women throughout my life, uh, but this one in particular rubbed me raw with a bit of sandpaper. I was really affected by her story. And it got me thinking about um, how many women in particular feel like her and have all the means at their disposal to change that but weren't quite sure how. So that's where Worthy came from. It it was my um, statement, I guess, to her and to women like her that you are worthy of more and most importantly, you have to believe that yourself because people around you believe it. But until you believe it for yourself, you won't be able to make changes and, uh, you know, self-development and self-belief is not um, self-indulgence. Mm. What do you think gets in the way for so many women? Mm. You and I have talked about this before and we've talked about fear of failure and we've talked about fear of judgment uh, from other people. And I, I also think fear of success is a huge factor. I think we're all just a tiny bit frightened of how, how brilliant we are and how brilliant we might be. Uh, it's, it's a really, if I think back to that time where uh, I was having the phone conversation in the car with the recruitment company, there was that moment of, uh, you know, what if I fail? But, oh, gosh, what if I do really well at this? How visible will I be? This is a statewide role. I might be in the media. I might be in the spotlight uh, I've done that in my own small community, uh, but never on such a big stage before. What will this mean for me? What could it mean for my life? Um, so I think we are all a tiny bit fearful of reputation, uh, judgment, pleasing other people, being seen to do the right things, but most of all, fear of success really gets in the way. Mm-hmm. And what would you say... 
to people now who may be feeling that. I think you're. I think what you've just said is a very real emotion for so many people. And what I'm always curious about is, is it? Is it? Do we think it's something that everyone feels, and it's just some people have the ability to push through and go for it anyway? can you push through and go for it anyway or you know is it just part and parcel of human nature is it due due to uh how we've been raised and brought up but I I don't know what I don't think there's one definite answer but I'm curious from your experience and the the people that you've worked with um you know how do people push past that because I think you're right I think it is a fear of success and maybe what potentially comes with that yeah I I think everything that you've just said um you know there are multiple answers really aren't there and it's Mm -hmm. all of the above um I do think people can push through and my where I where I think this is particularly different for women um is that we often underestimate our own abilities and skills. You know, there's the old adage, whether it's true or not, about, you know, men will have a crack at something even if they think they've only got 20% of the skills, whereas women will wait till they've got 100% and then still say, I don't think I'm fully equipped. Um, So I think we really do downplay our own value and our own worth. Uh, And it's it's also an inner conversation, a bit like, the one that I had with the recruitment uh, person, which was, you know, how badly do you want this? Mm. And, you know, what what's the worst thing that can happen, really? What is the worst thing that can happen is you'll be successful. And how bad is that? Um, it, we, we have a mutual colleague, you and I, uh, Pollyanna Lenchik, who wrote the book Women and Success. And Pollyanna often talks about how we shouldn't wait for confidence there's so much emphasis on women being more confident. You know, if you're just more confident, you can do this. But actually it's about bravery and courage because if we wait until we're confident, we don't really know what that feels like and we might never act. Uh, But if we take a deep breath and decide to be brave or courageous, that's a different thing and it doesn't necessarily require confidence. Mm. I love that. You're right. There's a lot of conversation about confidence, but it's it's so much more. Um, if there was someone listening to this right now that maybe about to take that big step, they know they can, but they're scared about doing it. Um, they've heard the "if you don't jump now, when will will you?" conversation mm-hmm. that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, given you've written a whole book about this with Worthy. Um, what are maybe, you know, top three ideas that you'd share with people to start getting curious about to help them make that decision? Mm. I would want them to ask themselves three questions um, and they are, um, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think about how to articulate this in a succinct way, so maybe I'll just say it because perhaps I can't. But the questions would be, uh, what what have you done in the past that's worked really well for you um, that you can learn from? What what can you bring into this situation that you know from your past experience? Because hands down, this will not be the first experience of it of the, its type that you've ever confronted. Uh, 
Um, the second question would be um, what skills and attributes do you know you have deep within you that are going to serve you well in this situation? And the third would be, it relates very, very much to all of the things that you've written about, Janine. The third would be who do you have around you that you will um, uh, take with you on the journey as your support crew, as your pit crew? So it's about... Um, you know, skills and resources and wisdom and traits and the support people that you will wrap around you. They are the three things that I think stand us in good stead for making the leap. Mm. I love that. Did you, when you think about that last one in particular, that support crew, because you've mentioned that a few times mm-hmm. during this conversation, um, and I'm imagining your support crew. Does your support crew, has your support crew changed over time? Mm. Oh, there have been some consistent people in there. Yeah, there's definitely some consistent people. So it has morphed and changed depending upon the things that I have needed and where I've been, uh, you know, physically and, and I guess psychologically. Um, but I've still got uh, girlfriends that I've had for gosh, close to 40 years. You know, I'm 55 now and I've known some of my best friends since I was 18. Uh, You know, I met them through uh, the man who is now my husband and they were there on our wedding day. Um, I've been there for, uh, you know, the the birth of their children, not physically in the labour ward but (laughs) alongside them while they've had their kids. Uh, You know, so there's a couple of women in particular that I think about who are my pit crew that have been there for such a long time. And I don't even see them that often, but we pick up where we left off in every conversation. Each text message or um, other type of message that we send each other, it's, it's like we've been in the room together endlessly and I trust them with my life and vice versa. Uh, so there's those kinds of people and then there are others in, you know, professional network who are around for different purposes. And, you know, I'd, I would include you in that, Janine. You know, you've been an incredible mentor to me. And, you know, it, it, we, we adapt our networks, I think, depending upon our needs at the time and who can teach us the most and, you know, be around to, you know, have our back really to care for us. Mm, it's so important. We We can't navigate life make major decisions uh change tack on our own and um it's one of the things that i'm slightly worried about with everything that we're going through globally with this pandemic now and that as much as we are disconnected physically and we know that i think one of the biggest challenges right now is we're disconnected mentally if we don't if we don't actually actively and intentionally surround ourselves with people that we can cry with, laugh with, shout with, rant with, celebrate with. Um, It's more important than ever to have that support crew around us as we navigate these crazy, crazy times. Totally, totally. And just so important to remind people how much we love them. You know, Mm. I'll just occasionally send a random text to a couple of friends saying, you know, you haven't heard from me in a while and I've been pretty busy, head down, writing the book, um, but I love you and I mm. hope you're okay. And, you know, I, I know they think I'm kind of corny and quirky in the way that I do that, but they always respond with some uh, funny emoji or, you know, we love you too mm. or, you know, a question about what's going on in life. And I think 
yeah, it's so important to stay connected. Mm. Yeah, it is. So as we wrap up this uh, conversation, I'm curious, uh, Marie, from your experience and from your knowledge base, in the context of this podcast being about unleashing brilliance, what, Mm -hmm. what does that term mean to you? What does unleashing brilliance mean to you? You know, I, I, I've got an image of someone shedding an old skin. You know, the visual that I'm having as I think about unleashing brilliance is kind of shrugging off an old coat or an old skin and stepping out into freshness and a sense of, um, uh, a sense of agency. You know, that um, when, I think when we unleash our brilliance, we suddenly recognise what we're capable of uh, and maybe that's where worthy comes into it for me. It's a it's a realization that we are worth investing in ourselves and investing in other people. Mm. Um, and for, you know, it's it's that question around what would love and compassion do? Well, love and compassion would allow us to unleash our brilliance. So I think it's I think that's a you know for me that's a beautiful metaphor of you know shaking off. Um, a sense of unworthiness or wistfulness and being able to step into our own power. Love that. Love that visual. Thank you for creating that. My final question, uh, let's imagine I am some amazing magician <laughs> and we can somehow get Omar on the end of the phone right now. What would you say to her? Oh, gosh. What would I say to her? I would say, Omar, look who I've become. I hope you're proud of me. I'm sure you are. And thank you for, well, first of all, thank you for creating my dad <laughs> because you he became a wonderful father and a beautiful man. So thank you for him and your gift to the world. Um, and, you know, you you've created a legacy in such a beautiful family that you possibly would never have known would exist and look what we've all gone on to achieve. Uh, So I would want to thank her and really call out the success that she built. Mm, That's beautiful. I want to thank her too because the work that you're doing in the space of helping so many others, in my words, unleash their brilliance, in your words, step into being worthy, um, is just incredible. And um, you know, thank thank you to Omar and Grandma and Mum and Dad and siblings for uh, <laughs> enabling you and supporting you in the incredible work that you're doing. Um, where can people get a copy of your book, Marie? Uh, Janine, people can buy the book directly from my website. So that's mariemcpherson.com.au. And also it's available uh, through Booktopia and Amazon. And it's available on Kindle. The, um, uh, the audio book is coming. It's not yet available, but it is coming. And I'll put uh, the links in the notes. Marie, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could keep talking to you and listening (laughs) to your stories all day, but uh, we're going to have to close up this episode. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing so much. It's been a joy, Janine. I've loved every minute of it. Those questions are challenging and thought-provoking. It's been wonderful. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. 
follow her blog, purchase her books, or find out more, visit her website, janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.